As you start to reach more people, things start to feel more complex. There's more to do and more to keep track of, and it starts to actually take time away from creating content. I felt this struggle personally. The more creator science grew, the more it felt like I was dropping the ball. So I did something about it. I built a set of rock solid systems, all in Notion to support the business as we grew. And it worked like a charm. I've now taken my personal Notion setup and productized it. It's called Creator HQ, and it's the complete operating system that you need for your creator business. I built Creator HQ to be an all-in-one workspace designed to save you more time, create more content, and drive more revenue. By leveraging Creator HQ, we are publishing more than we ever have, and we're nearing $1 million in annual revenue because of it. It brings all of your data and processes into one place with custom-built dashboards to reduce friction in managing tasks, creating content, and collaborating with your team. I've seriously spent more than three years building this, and now you can have the same systems that I use right out of the box. In the lab, one of our members just posted, I have spent the last few weeks diving into Creator HQ, learning how it works, and making it my own. This is the first time in a while that I felt this organized and filled with hope that I can find a workflow that will work for me with my whole business. This is gold. I will definitely be giving a testimonial for this badass product. If you're new to Notion, don't worry. I've included a ton of specific tutorials to help you learn how to use Notion generally and Creator HQ specifically. I've never seen another Notion product integrate tutorials like we have here. More than 300 other creators are already using Creator HQ, and I am not exaggerating when I say I would be lost without this system. Creator HQ is what keeps the trains running over here. As a podcast listener, I'm giving you my best price. You can get 10% off using the promo code podcast at checkout. Just head to creatorhq.co to watch the video and learn more. That's creatorhq.co and use promo code podcast to save 10%. I think now more than ever, it's it's helpful to be part of a network. You know, it's it's become harder to launch a new show. I mean, you definitely still can, but it really helps to have other shows that can help you with your launch, to promote it, to mention it, to give you some juice on social media, things like that. Welcome to Creative Elements, a show where we talk to your favorite creators and learn what it takes to make a living from your art and creativity. I'm your host, Jay Klaus. Let's start the show. Hello, welcome back to another episode of Creative Elements. Longtime listeners of the show know that I have a bit of a bias towards the mediums that I know the best and care about the most, and that is writing and podcasting. And that makes today's episode pretty special because it's a combination of the two. Today, I'm speaking with one of the most successful and longest running podcasters out there, Mignon Fogarty, also known as Grammar Girl. But long before Mignon was known to the audio world as Grammar Girl, she was a professional writer. Well, I was a technical writer and editor. I I have an undergraduate degree in English with a master's in biology. So I was editing, you know, white papers for biotech companies, and I wrote a lot of the Stanford Cancer Center website and things like that. I worked at a bunch of internet startups that were health-related. So I was a writer and an editor in the technology field. Then around 2006, Mignon became interested in podcasts. Some of the earliest podcasts were in the science and technology fields, and that seemed like a good place for her to start her own show. I had a science podcast. I actually did something called Absolute Science for almost eight months before I started Grammar Girl. So that was an interview-based show and a news-based show with a co-host. And gosh, it took a lot of time. (laughs) So I was working as a freelance writer and editor. And when you're doing that, time really is money. So I realized I couldn't do that anymore. It didn't make sense. But I had come to love podcasting. So I was looking for a shorter, quicker quick and dirty podcast that I could do. And I realized, you know, I was looking up writing rules all the time and my client editing clients were making the same mistakes over and over again. So I was looking to do a simpler show and I landed on Grammar Girl. And that decision really paid off. Grammar Girl provides short, friendly tips to improve your writing and feed your love of the English language. We're talking about episodes that are less than 15 minutes here, sometimes less than 10. Mignon tackles specific topics like when to use the different forms of there, there, and there, whether blonde should have an E at the end, and where to place punctuation when there are parentheses involved. 
If the part inside the parentheses is a question, put the question mark inside. But if the parentheses just come at the end of a longer question, put the question mark outside. For example, if you write this sentence, we're going to Lori's beach house, open parenthesis, where is the beach house again? Close parenthesis. So you've put the question, where is the beach house again, inside parentheses as part of one long sentence. So you put the question mark inside the closing parenthesis. Where is the beach house again? Question mark, close parenthesis, and then a period to end the whole sentence. Mignon started Grammar Girl in 2007, and it was a near instant success. You know, I posted my show to Apple Podcasts, back then iTunes, and within six weeks, it was number two. I was like, this American Life, Grammar Girl. <laughs> really? Yeah. And it was, I, I, it was all just word of mouth. I didn't do anything to promote it. But then when it did so well, writers started to notice. And then I started to get a lot of press, which was great. A lot has happened for Mignon over the last 15 years and 700 plus episodes of Grammar Girl. The show is a five-time winner of the Best Education Podcast from Podcast Awards, and Mignon is an inductee in the Podcasting Hall of Fame. She has written seven books, including the New York Times bestseller, Grammar Girl's Quick and Dirty Tips for Better Writing, and she has developed an iOS game called Grammar Pop. She even appeared on the Oprah Winfrey Show. Oh, and Grammar Girl is only one of Mignon's podcasts. Shortly after launching the show, Mignon created one of the first podcast networks, the Quick and Dirty Tips Network, to launch other short-form educational shows too. So in this episode, we talk about the growth of Grammar Girl and the Quick and Dirty Tips Network, trends in podcasting, book publishing, and how her obsession with learning has steered her creative career. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this episode as you listen. You can find me on Twitter or Instagram at jklaus. And if you haven't joined our Creative Elements listeners group on Facebook yet, the link is in the show notes. But now, let's talk to Mignon. I've always had a knack for making complicated things interesting. So that, you know, when I was in college and doing science work, you know, my professors would comment on that. that oh, you, you know, you have such a skill for writing and making this interesting. And I feel like I do the same thing with grammar. Like that could be very dry and boring too, but I just try really hard to make it fun and interesting. And there's always a story that goes with things that, that can help. But you're right. When I was writing user manuals for DNA sequencers, you know, my soul wanted to die. <laughs> so I, I was feeling very unhappy um, with my career, even though I was, you know, I was very successful, but I just was bored out of my mind. And that was part of the reason I started podcasting is, you know, to have a hobby, to have something, you know, more interesting to do with my, my brain. So yeah, that was also what got me started. It's hard to put yourself back into the mindset of like 2006, 2007. But for the listener, you know, this is when Twitter was getting started. It was when Uber was getting started. So imagine your life before Twitter and Uber and all the social media and things. And you were starting a podcast. I don't think I listened to my first podcast until 2015, maybe. Oh, wow. So (laughs) tell me about the world of podcasting when you were getting started and how you identified this as a medium that was even open and available to you and one that you were interested in. Oh, it was this wonderful, small, friendly world. I listened to to podcasts before I started making one, and so I was a fan. And gosh, you know, I kept telling my dad about this amazing thing called podcasting that I had discovered. And finally, he was like, why don't you just go ahead and do it? You you know, you talk about it, you love it, just just actually do it. So so I had that encouragement. And the, the thing that people find hilarious now is that I thought I was too late. I thought I had missed the wave <laughs> because I started podcasting after Apple launched their podcasting section, you know, and that was a big Mm. growth time. Um, Before that, it was technically really quite hard to get a podcast. And then Apple came along and it was much, much easier. And there was an explosion in the number of podcasts. And I felt like I was really way too late. (laughs) Really? Really, really. Okay. So what podcasts were you listening to before you started yours? And how were you actually listening to them? Yeah. So I was listening on an MP3 player. I actually don't remember how I got them. I listened to a show called Matt's Today in History, which was a big inspiration for me because it's a similar format. It was a short scripted show, and I really liked that. I also listened to, I 
think it was called This Week in Science back then with Dr. Kiki. She and her co-host, I don't remember his name now, but they were out of UC Davis doing a science show that I really enjoyed. I think it might have been a radio show that was rebroadcast as a podcast. And honestly, I don't remember any of the others I listened to. It was so long ago, but those were two big ones. I was just so inspired and you know, saw other people doing it. And I have always loved technology and I love, I love learning new things. So figuring out the ins and outs of podcasting, especially back when it was really hard, was, was, you know, candy to me. It was just fun to learn, you know, how to hand code an RSS feed and, you know, get a podcast up in the world. It was it's my it's my jam. <laughs> you had to write your own RSS feed in the beginning, even when Apple Podcasts was allowing you to listen in that way? Oh, yeah. And um, I insisted on doing it by hand for a long time after you didn't have to. And um, I remember Rob Walsh from Libsyn would make fun of me because I wouldn't like switch over to the automated way of doing it. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Well, just out of curiosity, I'd love to hear what your audio setup was in the early days. What were you using to actually record? Oh, gosh. Well, I think my first real mic was a snowball. And that mic served me well for so long. I'm really clumsy. So I I dropped it probably 10 times and it still works. You know, the other thing that got me started is I, I hurt my wrists. And so I was doing voice dictation around the time I became interested in podcasting. So I just had a little cheap you know, headset from Radio Shack or something, but it had gotten me used to talking into a microphone. And it was the same time when I sort of discovered podcasting. So I think the intersection of those two things also helped get me started because I I felt comfortable talking into a microphone. And so my first mic was just, you know, some horribly cheap, you know, $20 $20 thing, you know, it sounded terrible. I, I went back and, you know, remastered those original episodes eventually. You mentioned that some of the first shows you were listening to were short scripted shows, maybe even radio shows that were adapted and rebroadcast as a podcast in those early days. Was that typical that people were putting scripting into their production work or what what was the level of production like? No, it was quite unusual. I didn't really enjoy long chat shows. And that was the majority of what was out there. And a lot of it was science and technology because it was the big nerds who were interested in podcasting in the beginning. And, you know, I didn't enjoy those shows as much as I enjoyed Maths Today in History because I felt like it, it got to the point. It didn't waste my time. And I just really liked that. And I felt it just fit more with what I wanted to do. And then production wise, it's actually easier to do one person talking with a script, you you know, I don't have to go back and do much editing and I don't have to schedule and coordinate with anyone else. So the time-saving element was also really one of the reasons I did it. Well, take me back to this moment where I think you said your father said, why don't you go ahead and make the show? How did you settle on the format for Grammar Girl? So when he said, go ahead and do the show, that was when I started the science show. And I did it with a co-host and we did interviews, which was really hard back then with scientists. And we did news commentary every day. And and that was taking me about 20 hours a week. So the format I chose because I was looking to do something that would take less time, actually. You know, it was what I liked. I liked the history show. And then I was also looking to just do something a lot simpler because I wanted to keep podcasting, but I couldn't commit that much time to it. So what's really funny about that is after I did Grammar Girl, then it took off and took so much more of my time that it became my full-time job. (laughs) So it didn't go as planned, but it went well. Is the format from the early days pretty similar to what it is today? It is. It was much, much shorter back then. So, you know, uh, quick and dirty tips is the network. And that's that's something my mom would say, you know, let's do a quick and dirty job on these dishes or let's do a quick and dirty job pulling these weeds. And it means just the essentials, like let's do just what needs to be done. And so that was my goal is to give people just the advice they need on how to use the semicolon, you know, for example. Grammar Girl here. Today's topic is semicolons. I get questions about semicolons a lot, so it's time to clear up some confusion. Semicolons separate things. Most commonly, they separate two main clauses that are closely related to each other, but that could stand on their own as sentences if you wanted them to. Here's an example. It was below zero, semicolon. Squiggly wondered if he would freeze to death. The two parts of that long sentence that are separated by a semicolon could be sentences on their own if you put a period between them. It was below zero, period. Squiggly wondered if he would freeze to death, period. 
One reason you might choose to use a semicolon instead of a period is if you wanted to add variety to your sentence structure. For example, if you thought you had too many short, choppy sentences in a row. But when you use a semicolon, the main clauses should be closely related to each other. You wouldn't write, it was below zero, semicolon, squiggly had pizza for dinner, because those two main clauses have nothing to do with each other. And back then, a show would be maybe a minute and a half, two minutes. Over time, I found I have more to say. And now I have two or three segments per show. So now the show is more in the, I don't know, 12 to 17 minute range when you add everything up, all the segments and the callers and things like that. So it's much longer than it used to be. What's wild to me, my next question was going to be, you know, how do you come up with the ideas for what you're going to share in this episode. And what's wild to me is you're now 700 plus episodes in and now you're doing more segments per show as if you you just don't have enough even inventory to share all the ideas you have related to the English language. Right. And a couple of years ago, I did two shows a week for uh, I think it was a, a whole year. And I sometimes still wish I was doing that because I have so much I want to cover when things things come up in the news and I'll be like, oh, I already did this week's show. I can't fit this in. But I, it, it is a mix because, you know, a lot of the the topics do get more esoteric. You know, we're coming up on 15 years and instead of doing just the basics that people know they want, like affect versus effect and who versus whom, I'm talking about, did you know that the word op-ed actually doesn't mean opinion editorial, but opposite editorial because the page appears opposite the editorial page in a newspaper? So, I did not know that. Yeah. So I, I have fit in a lot more, like, isn't this word fascinating? Isn't this word origin interesting? kind of segments to go along with the purely educational stuff, mostly just because that's the kind of thing that interests me these days. And people seem to like it too when I do it. So nobody's complained that I'm not completely useful in every single segment. I think people like to be entertained too. So it seems to be working. After a quick break, Mignon and I talk about how she generates new ideas week after week and how she manages her production process. And a little bit later, we talk about the future of the podcasting space. So stick around, and we'll be right back. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Last year, my wife and I started talking about her joining the business full-time. This is a huge decision, not just for the business, but for our marriage. My wife, being the very smart and thoughtful woman that she is, suggested that we proactively sign up for therapy as a couple to help us communicate better before we started working together. It really helped us have better language to describe how we're feeling and listen to one another, which generally lowers the intensity of any conversation. Now, I had never been in therapy before, but here's something that I didn't expect. It didn't just help our dialogue, but it helped my inner monologue too. The way I understand my own experience has changed based on the tools that I got from therapy. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, so it's convenient, it fits your schedule, and you can be in the comfort of your own home. Just fill out a short questionnaire and you'll get matched with a licensed therapist. They even make it easy to switch therapists if it doesn't feel like a fit. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com creator today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash creator. This episode is sponsored by Podcast Movement. For the past decade, Podcast Movement has organized the world's largest gathering of podcasters, featuring thousands of attendees, hundreds of breakout sessions, panels, and workshops, plus the largest trade show in podcasting. Podcast Movement helps podcasters of all experience levels create, grow, and profit from their show. It's suitable for beginners, but you'll also have the opportunity to meet some of the biggest names in the industry. I've been to several podcast movement events, and not only is the programming incredible, but the culture and vibe are incredible too. It attracts thoughtful, empathetic, and collaborative people, which makes sense when you think about the medium of podcasting. Podcast Movement hosts two events per year. The first just wrapped up, but their flagship conference is happening August 19th through the 22nd in Washington, D.C. Attendees have the freedom to choose their own adventure across several different stages throughout the four-day event not to mention dozens of amazing networking events, parties, and the expo hall floor. Tracks include podcast creation, video and live streaming, industry professional, plus several stages of curated programming from some of the top companies in podcasting. It's truly a unique event, and if you are a podcaster, I cannot recommend it enough. 
Right now, tickets are available at super duper early bird pricing. And as a Creator Science listener, you can save $50 on top of that by visiting podcastmovement.com slash science. That's podcastmovement.com slash science. Welcome back to my conversation with Grammar Girl Mignon Fogarty. After publishing more than 700 episodes of Grammar Girl over the last 15 years, I figured Mignon has probably learned a pretty efficient process for producing her own show. So I asked her how she manages that level of content production. I have a monster spreadsheet that keeps track of everything I've ever done, separated by show and segment, but it is a challenge. The thing that's just in the last month or so that's become challenging is, you know, because we have so many segments, the website also does really well too. The website is a big part of our business. And, you know, it's been maybe 10 years since I updated the segment on how to write numbers and to keep relevant in search rankings. I need to update that, but I don't want to be constantly doing reruns. I do a lot and I usually rework things, but, you know, I do that a lot, but there are more things that need to be updated to work on the website as opposed to the podcast. So I've had to add a new sheet to my spreadsheet to keep track of things I've updated only on the web, but not in the podcast, because I might want to do them in the podcast in the future someday. So having to bifurcate those dates has been a big challenge. So yeah, yeah, it's true. Content management is challenging. We're going to zoom the story forward here in a minute to talk about how this became your full-time job and how that grew into a network and, and those things. But while we're here, I would love to hear kind of a beginning to end, what does your process look like for producing one of these episodes so people can understand what goes into creating a scripted show, even if it is a shorter show? I'm sure there are a lot of steps. Sure. And and I should also say that to have fresh ideas, I now work with guest writers for, I don't know, 30 to 50% of the shows. And one thing I love about that is they bring fresh ideas that I, you know, they have ideas I never had. So that is incredibly helpful. But let's just focus on when I write a show. You know, I come up with the idea and then I'll just start researching, you know, and I I use, you know, I'm, I'm on the web. I use the Oxford English Dictionary, Adam Online, dictionary.com, Merriam-Webster, Google Books. I use those a lot. And then I also have a library of physical books that I they will look things up in almost always um, Garner's Modern English Usage, the Merriam-Webster Dictionary of English Usage. And then I have a whole bunch of more specialized books that I'll, I'll look at depending on what the question is. And so I, I just sort of start reading about it and learning everything I can about it. And sometimes it's as straightforward as I think it is going to be. And other times it's, it's much more interesting. You know, last week I, I covered what's the spelling of ketchup? You know, is it with the C or the K? And I thought that would be really short and straightforward. But then I discovered that ketchup wasn't always a tomato sauce. And the history of ketchup is fascinating. And so, you know, my husband jokes that I can always turn a tidbit into a meaty middle. Um, I call my, my short, <laughs> short segments tidbits and the long ones are meaty middles. And he's like, turned into a meaty middle again, didn't it? <laughs> yep, I can do that. <laughs> Yeah, so I do the research and then I sit down and I write the script. And, you know, that takes, you know, time depending on how complicated it is. I almost never abandon a topic, but sometimes I do. This week I actually had to abandon a topic because I just felt like I couldn't explain it in a clear way yet. I just needed to do a lot more research. And that's very frustrating. And that almost never happens. So usually I just sit down and write it and then I have my script. And when I have time, I send it to my editor to review. I don't do that nearly as often as I should. I'm, I'm bad. Um, <laughs> I like being edited. I just can't get my stuff done on time. But then, then I record and then I, I have a producer who helps with all the backend stuff. So I, I record and then I, I actually have a podcasting checklist because there are so many steps now in what I need to do. We have a partnership with Macmillan Learning. So they get an ad-free version of the show with a, a triple proofread transcript that they use on their educational platform. So that requires a lot of extra side work. So mm-hmm. they separate those two and I make their transcripts and I make my web pages, you know, I have to pick the art, I have to format everything, put in the references and, and all that. that. It takes a long time to make the pages, actually. I write the metadata for our system, you know, the title and description and all that. I write social media posts for, we have a social media person, but I write most of the posts for her to schedule because, you know, with a grammar show, they have to be perfect. 
Then I send it to my producer who runs it through filters, you know, to get rid of my pops and even it all out and stuff like that. And then he, he ultimately makes it go live. And then, then I try to do social media the next day or two to promote it. Again, that's something I, I need to get better at, but I used wow. to be much better at it. It's very encouraging to me to hear that you are still so hands-on because, you know, I, my process is similar in a lot of ways. And there's just so many steps and it's like, oh my gosh, I, I love when I get ahead, but I'm, I'm never more than like a week ahead on actual finished episodes or the scripted part of it. And I still do my own social media and things like that too. And it's just... It's yeah. exhausting. Same here. And I actually had to add, tell your producer the file is ready to my checklist because a couple times I uploaded it and forgot to tell him. <laughs> so mm. every little step is on that. I really believe in checklists. So. <laughs> I wanted to go back to this point Mignon made a little bit ago about thinking she was too late to start a podcast back in 2007. It's funny in retrospect because that was still such early, early days for the medium. So I asked Mignon to reflect on how the growth of podcasting generally has impacted Grammar Girl. I feel like the the growth in the last 15 years, I don't feel like it's affected me that much. Like what I do is what I do. You know, in the early days, one thing that really helped me is that writers love the idea that a grammar podcast is popular. So I was the Wall Street Journal web pick of the day in I think it was 2006. It might have been 2007. Yeah, after that, I got calls from, I think it was five New York publishers who wanted to do a book deal because wow. it wasn't that long after Eat, Shoots, and Leaves had come out. So they were like, this is our next Eat, Shoots, and Leaves. And um, I was already looking for a partner. So, but at that point, I had launched the whole Quick and Dirty Tips network with, and I had about six shows in the network because, as I mentioned, I worked at startups in Silicon Valley. And so I knew when the show took off that I was onto a whole business and I was looking for a partner to grow it even more. And so fortunately, Macmillan Publishing had a big digital initiative. So they were looking to get into digital businesses and and they called me about a book, but we ended up partnering over the whole network. So I did a book deal, but I also partnered with them for Quick and Dirty Tips. And I was very involved in the management for the first few years. And then in 2009, they took over most of the um, day-to-day management of the network. And they've done a great job. That's incredible for a few reasons. One being that you recognize that there's momentum here and you're interested in growing that and turning it into a business because... That's not necessarily a natural leap for everybody out there. Not everybody is inclined or interested or aware enough to start a business. So, you know, what was that like for you? Yes, you had the experience, but what was the push to say, you know what, I do want to be an entrepreneur now? I had always had entrepreneurial tendencies. So my college roommate and I started a hair bow business out of our, our room. We made scrunchies and we went around selling them on campus. So, you know, from the very early days, I've always been interested in I don't know, business. I just, I like feeling like the things I do have value. And when somebody else wants it, to me, that shows that it has value. So, and then, and, you know, and then I was in Silicon Valley at the peak of the dot com boom and worked at a bunch of startups. So I've just been around entrepreneurial people during very, you know, formative years in my life. If this was all happening around 2006 and you said, I'm going to expand this into a network and you had six or seven shows. I have to think that was like the first podcasting network out there. <laughs> oh, no, it wasn't. Um, Leo Laporte was out there with his network and Adam Curry had his uh, network. I forget what it was called now. It went through so many name changes, but yeah, no. And actually it was funny because I actually first tried to join their networks and they weren't interested. So I was finally, I was like, fine, I'll do it myself. <laughs> wow. And so how did, you, how did you think to architect that? How did you land on six shows? How did you land on the concepts for those shows? Did you think that you were going to host those shows in the beginning? Did you host them in the beginning? What did that look like? I felt like I had observed other podcast networks and how they operated. And I felt like it was really important to have oversight and to be able to tell the hosts, I guess, you are going to cross promote this other show this week. Because I, I was part, I, I had observed networks where they didn't seem to be helping each other very much. And I feel like to be part of a network, it's really like one of the big benefits is to help each other, to promote each other's shows and be supportive. And so that was really important to me. So one of the key elements I set up is that Quick and Dirty Tips owns the shows. 
and we pay our hosts. In the early days, you know, I didn't have money, so we did revenue share. <laughs> but once McMillan came on board, we started paying the hosts, just paying them. You know, that works really well because, I mean, we've been going for 15 years and a weekly podcast can be a slog or just something people aren't interested in doing after eight years, you know, or something right. like that. They want to move on and do other things with their life. So, you know, we've had multiple hosts move on and because we own the shows, we can get a new host and not lose all that momentum. You know, we can keep the subscribers, keep the show going. So that's been a huge benefit. And just to maintain consistency across the network, you know, we do the production for all the hosts like we do for me. They go, the audio goes to the producer. They handle all the technical sides. We have an editor that edits their shows. We have artists who you know, do the logos and stuff like that. So they all have a similar look and feel. You can tell it's one network. So I think that cohesiveness was something that was really important to me when I was setting it up and that, that we've continued over the years. That's so smart. And there's just so much forethought in that because, yeah, most shows fade after seven episodes, alone eight years and a 15 year time horizon. I'm sure there's there's been a fair amount of turnover. So how do you think about how you weight the importance of the content to the audience versus their relationship to the host? Because when a host does move on, I imagine there is a difficult transition period to some degree. Do you plan for that ahead of time, like before hosts leave? You know, we've never seen a drop in traffic when we've changed hosts. And I think, and in some cases, I think we've even seen traffic go up because, you know, maybe someone sort of had lost enthusiasm for the show and we brought in, you know, a fresh voice. So, yeah, I mean, so I think, I guess that probably speaks to the fact that our content is is what is driving the listenership. And I know relationship to the host is important. People do feel connected. I hear from people all the time who feel like they're connected to me. They know me. They enjoy feeling like they know me. I don't know. I think that from what we do, the advice type, very information heavy advice type shows, the content is number one. You know, I think if you have a host who doesn't connect with the audience, that can hurt you. But, you know, you need both to be successful. But, but I think the content really, really matters. So if you were going to start a new show on the Quick and Dirty Tips Network next month, <laughs> what types of things are for sure these are important, this is part of the structure versus what's up for negotiation and change? Well, it has to be a scripted show of a certain length. I think we'd be flexible about the length, but couldn't be 30 minutes, for example. It has to be family-friendly. So, you know, we wouldn't do like something risque <laughs> or <laughs> we probably wouldn't do anything really controversial. Those are the big things that come to mind. The other thing is that we feel like our people have to be experts. They have to be trusted in their area. So if there was someone who didn't know anything about, I don't know, gardening, you know, we wouldn't bring them on as a host. They'd have to be, you know, a gardener in their community or, you know, someone with a long established blog or, or some credibility is really important to our show. So someone would also have to be very credible. Well, I was telling you before we started recording, what, what I really love about your shows and your model is they are these shorter shows. And I think, especially now as the marketplace has gotten more crowded, it's at least easier to get someone to click play for the first time on a shorter show and give it a shot. But the trade-off is if the show gets successful, you have less space to put in ad inventory if part of the model is ad inventory. So how do you think about that trade-off? Yeah, for sure. Um, I do think about that. Yeah, we have three ad slots in my show. So we have a pre-roll and two mid-rolls. And that's the reason I have two segments. Um, that's the reason we made the show longer is, you know, to support more ads. And because, you know, people would always say they wanted more. Like when we did surveys, what do you want? They just say more, more, more. <laughs> so, but yeah, we can, I, I feel like we cannot support more than three ads in a show. And, you know, I hear longer shows and they'll have like eight ads and I think, oh, they must be raking it in, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so it's interesting, but it's what we do. I mean, it take, I, I guess it probably takes us less time to put the show out. So it, it's a trade-off. You know, when I did the the two shows a week, that was nice because there was more ad inventory, but it was it was just a little bit too much work. When we come back, Mignon and I talk about the skills she's learned in different projects she's tried over the last few years. Then we dive into her recommendations for creators and podcasters just getting started today, right after this. Hey, welcome back. To this point in Mignon's story, things have felt like pretty smooth sailing. Grammar Girl grew quickly after release, including coming in behind This American Life as the second most popular podcast on iTunes. Then she formed the partnership with Macmillan Publishing for the podcast network. And so I asked her, looking back, 
What else stood out to her during this period of growth? I think the things that stand out to me are the new things that I got to try, um, the new experiences I got to have, because I just love learning new things and learning about new things. So, you know, I did a lot of media, which was very uncomfortable for me at first. And I was on the Oprah Winfrey show. I was on the Today Show. I've done hundreds of call-in radio shows, which is really nerve-wracking. People can ask you anything. And I think I've, I've gotten a lot better at that over the years. So that's something I'm kind of proud of and enjoyed doing in the end. I wrote seven books, one of which was a New York Times bestseller. So that That's was so many books. We're gonna have to come back to that. It's sure. so many books. And I wrote I wrote them in six years. I haven't written a book for five or six years. I got kind of burned out on that. And again, like that's the thing. It was new. I was excited, learning all about writing a book. And then, you know, after a few, I'm like, oh, I don't need to do any more of those. I learned to code so I could make a game called Grammar Pop. <laughs> that was probably not the best use of a year of my life, but you know, it, it, it was challenging to me and something that I enjoyed. I saw that was a thing you made. I had, I had no expectation that you learned to code to build it yourself. I did. Yeah, we got a bunch of bids um, for people to make it and they were just exorbitantly expensive. And I'm, again, you, you'll see this come up maybe a lot. I'm like, fine, I'll do it myself. <laughs> so I do that. And I made a card game. I have a friend who um, makes games. He's a, he's a game maker. And another friend who's an artist. And I always wanted to make a card game about um, little peeves. So I, I made a, with them, I made a card game called Peeve Wars. So I learned all about making card games. And that was really fun. And I did a crowdfunding project. So I learned about making crowd, doing crowdfunding projects. And that was a challenge. And yeah, recently I've started doing video, which is something I was never very comfortable with. But right before the pandemic, I started doing YouTube videos and then kind of got all unshuffled for a while and couldn't do them. But in the last couple months, I've started doing them again. And I started um, doing TikTok videos because, again, that's something new to learn about and try. And so that's been really fun for the last few months. So you can find me on TikTok now. Looking back at all these different efforts that you've learned and tried and published, are there any of them that you would call out to folks listening to say, you know what, this might not be worth your time or this didn't go as it planned or if you're going to do this one, make sure you know X. Yeah, I would say don't learn to code to make a game. That was a terrible use of my time and, and I'll never make another one. I learned this skill I'm never going to use again and it was hard. <laughs> so I'm really proud of having accomplished it, but I would never advise someone else to do it. What about your publishing experience? A lot of people aspirationally is like, I, I know I have a book in me. I got to write a book. You've written seven of them now. What has your experience been with publishing, traditional publishing, and what people should know about that if they're considering it? Yeah, it was embarrassingly easy for me because they just approached me. You know, I, I didn't have to write a, I, I still don't know how to write a book proposal. I mean, I, it, it, I just got to write books, which, you know, people probably hate me because I said that, <laughs> but I just, I, you know, it just, I was lucky. And, but um, I worked really hard on the books and I guess what I would say is writing a book is incredibly time consuming and hard and solitary. So you have to be passionate about what you're writing about. And I think that's what has kept me from writing more books in the last five or six years is there are things clearly I could write that would make sense for me to write, but I don't feel like I want to devote a year of my life with my butt in my computer chair, you know, doing, digging deep into any of these topics. And that's really what it takes. It's, it's just an incredible amount of focused work. I'm glad I did it. And I probably will do it again, but I need to find that topic that, that I can devote that much energy to. You said you love to learn, and that's very obvious from everything we've talked about here. It also sounds like you have a lot on your plate. So how do you manage finding or carving out time to explore your interests without just getting stuck in the week to week of scripting the next podcast episode? Yeah, it's it's it is it's hard for me to stay focused on the things that matter most for the business because I'm so excited to try new things. I can get distracted into spending time on things that actually don't matter for the business. <laughs> so, you know, I think in some ways Macmillan is good. They'll they'll pull me back from things maybe that that I shouldn't be spending so much time on. And usually, usually I come around, like usually I figure it out myself. You know, I'll, I'll be like, oh, I'm, I'm spending, you know, five hours a week on this thing that 
that gets us nothing. <laughs> so, yeah, but it, that is a, ch- a personal challenge because because I do just love new things. And sometimes the new thing isn't the best thing. Sometimes the old thing is the thing you need to keep doing. Well, like I said a couple of times, you know, I feel like even today in 2021, we're seeing more and more activity around new podcast networks, consolidation in the space, people moving towards more highly produced, shorter shows. And you are ahead of the curve on all of those trends. So as you're looking at the podcasting space, what are you looking towards as far as this is the direction we're heading or we see the space going in this direction? There are people listening to this right now who probably want to start a podcast themselves. Mm-hmm. I think now more than ever, it's it's helpful to be part of a network. You know, it's it's become harder to launch a new show. I mean, you definitely still can, but it really helps to have other shows that can help you with your launch, to promote it, to mention it, to give you some juice on social media, things like that. It matters now more than I think it ever did. I think as a network, I think that we really need to launch more shows. I think growth is important to stay relevant. So, you know, the thing that I'm thinking about quite a bit is is can, how, how many shows can we launch? Can we launch more shows? <laughs> and uh, I think uh, we have a couple coming out soon. So I'm excited about that. And it's just, that's the, that's the thing that probably I harp on more than anything is is can we get more shows out? That's interesting because, you know, the stat that I hear all the time is podcasting. We just crossed over a million total active podcasts, YouTube channels. There's 30 million of them. So on the surface, it feels like, wow, there's still so much room to grow in podcasting if YouTube is there. But at the same time, YouTube videos are probably a lot shorter on average than podcasts are. And I feel like there is less listening time than people are giving viewing time. So when you think about growth as a network and you're saying more shows, more shows, how do you ensure that you're not cannibalizing listeners of your existing shows for your new shows? Mm. Well, I think our topics are so different that we don't have a whole lot of overlap. You know, someone who listens to Grammar Girl isn't necessarily interested in the Get Fat Guy or the Nutrition Diva and vice versa. I mean, they are, but, you know, it's not like we're going to launch a second language show or, you know, probably not a second fitness show, for example. So, but there's a, there's so much advice that you know there, there's you know our, our topics in some ways are very niche so and, and niches work well for podcasting because people are passionate about their niches so i think there are a lot of niches we could still cover the amount of content you guys have on the website because you you turn your your episodes into blog posts it's like mind-blowing it's like oh my gosh there is a treasure trove here do you find that getting search traffic, organic search traffic on the web converts to audio listeners? Yes and no. It's so interesting because because I think of myself as a podcaster. I assume everyone knows about the podcast, but you know, half the people I meet know about Grammar Girl because they did a web search for something and came across my site and they don't know hmm. that I have a podcast. I say, I had no idea hmm. you had a podcast. So I'm constantly reminded that I need to be talking about the podcast more than I do. I need to mention it a lot more on social media. We revamped the website a few years ago to try to make the podcasts more prominent so that when you land on a page from a Google search, you'll see that we have a podcast. There's a player on all the pages, you know, but um, people still don't always make that connection. So I think we could be hitting people even more over the head with it. But, but also, I mean, the web alone is a big part of our business. So we don't need to be reminding people on the web that we have a podcast either. I mean, it'd be great if we had those synergies and can do both, but, but the web stands alone too as a, a business element and resource. So interesting. I had an article that hit number one on Hacker News and the strategy of this whole like written article, a whole written objective was, well, if people come to the webpage, they'll become podcast listeners. And so we got like 30,000 views that day on that article, zero conversion to new yeah. listeners from what we could tell. Yeah, that doesn't it really surprise me. <laughs> so upsetting. So for, for indie podcasters who want to grow, who aren't necessarily trying to launch new shows because they, they have a zero-sum game of time, how would you encourage them or me, you can speak to me directly if you'd like, to prioritize their efforts for growing their show? You know, I think a newsletter is one of the most important things you can do. And so, you know, in a way, that's reaching your, your current listeners, right? If you encourage them all to sign up for your newsletter, you're, you're only reaching your current listeners that way, but it's an easy thing for them to share and you can give the messages in the newsletter encouraging them to share your show with other people and to talk about it on social. 
engaging your current listeners. You know, one of the things I do in the show, I have people call in with their familect story. So their family word story. And that's become oh. a segment people love in the show. It's at the very end. But also when people call in and they hear their story on the podcast, they tell all their friends. And so that is also a great way to encourage people to share the show. In the past, we've had not really contests, but initiatives, I guess you'd call them, where I had people just post pictures telling me where they listen. It was a hashtag where I listen. And then a bunch of other people started using that hashtag and it became really confusing. But um, <laughs> for a while on Instagram, if you looked at hashtag where I listen, you would see only people who were showing me where they listened to the Grammar Girl podcast. And that was cool. I really started it, I think it was at the 10 year anniversary, maybe to sort of keep myself excited. Like I want to know my listeners, show me where you listen, keep me going. So that's another way to get people to essentially tell their friends about the show. I, I still find that word of mouth is really one of the best things. It's how I discover new shows when I see people talking about them on Twitter or something like that. So I think getting your current listeners to talk about your show any way you can is, is probably one of the best things you can do. And then the newsletter lets you reach them in a regular way. You mentioned these new platforms that you're trying, TikTok, uh, even YouTube to a degree. How do you think about the topics and the areas you explore on those channels? Do you try to relate them directly to the episode this week? Do you try to even repurpose some of that? How does that look? I probably should do more of that, and I plan to. But um, with with TikTok's been really interesting because it's so short. So I have had to ch carefully choose what I talk about that will fit into 60 seconds maximum. And I actually feel like I'm getting back to my quick and dirty tips roots because my original show was so short. So I can't talk about everything I want to talk about. And I also can't even talk about it in the detailed nuance that I would like to talk about it these days. So I have to keep it short and quick. Here's a pronunciation rule that I never learned as a child and still struggle with. It's pronouncing the or the. It's the before a word that starts with a vowel sound and the before a word that starts with a consonant sound. So it's the Emmys, but the Pulitzer Prize. What I try to do and I would like to do more is often in the podcast, I'll discover something interesting while I'm doing my research. And that's a little tidbit I can share without giving away the whole episode. So I'll try to find something, you know, I can do really quick like that, that I don't like doing just teasers. I like to give people something. I don't picture myself ever saying like, this week's show is about X and come check it out. Like I haven't given you anything of value. Why would you? So I want to give a tip and then give you say for even more, come to the podcast. I've heard that strategy referred to as the sawdust. And I love this analogy, this idea that like you're in the shop, you're making something. And in the course of making the thing, you end up with a lot of sawdust, but there's still some value to that. And instead of just throwing that away, you can utilize that on other platforms. I think it's, it's really smart when you recognize that there's an opportunity there. That's great. Yeah, I've never heard it described that way. I like that. If you were to start your own second show on the Quick and Dirty Tips Network, exploring a different topic that wasn't grammar, <laughs> What would it be? Oh my gosh. I have thought about this. There's actually a lot. <laughs> Probably, I don't know. On the Quick and Dirty Tips Network, it has to be a specific kind of format. So what I, I think would fit best there is a happiness podcast. A couple of years ago, I took the happiness course that Lori Santos does. She actually now has the, I think it's called the Happiness Lab podcast. But I like the course more than the podcast, and it really, in a lot of ways, changed my life and how I look at things. And I would love to share that information with people and, and, and provide support, ongoing support for people who have maybe taken the course and, and want to just think about it more. So I've, I've thought about doing that. In a lot of ways, it doesn't make sense for me to do anything but Grammar Girl and that and, and that's the kind of thing where you say, I could be really distracted by the exciting new thing I've discovered. And, oh, hey, I'll go do this whole other podcast that has nothing to do with my existing audience. Let's do that. <laughs> you know, and, and the sane people in my life are like, maybe that's not the best use of your time. <laughs> yeah, I, I get it, though. But, you know, after 15 years, that's that's a long haul. Yeah. I've never done anything for 15 years. I had not either. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and then the, this morning, I mean, I was thinking about this podcast wouldn't fit on the Quick and Dirty Tips Network, but, you know, I 
would like to, you know, sort of do more meaningful, not more meaningful, but maybe more service oriented things with my life. But I get overwhelmed because there's so much you could do, like poverty, homelessness, hunger, illiteracy, you know, like, and I, I don't do I don't do anything because I get overwhelmed by the number of things that I could do. And so this morning, I was thinking about doing a podcast that would more like interview people who do all these different things. And, and also thinking about how you could make a difference with small amounts of time, as opposed to having to like, you know, give up everything you have and go devote your entire life to fighting homelessness. Like, is there something you could do in half an hour a day that would make a difference? And that's just a question that's really interesting to me. And I thought it might be interesting to other people. And, and of course, then my brain goes to, I could do a podcast about that. <laughs> well, for the folks listening to this who are still on the fence, but are leaning towards, okay, I'm going to start a podcast in 2021. What advice would you give them for getting started today? Oh my gosh, I would tell them to start right away. So, you know, when I started, my show was horrible. It was with a bad microphone. You know, I wasn't even right about everything I was saying. You know, there's a reason those first eight episodes are gone. But if you don't take risks and just start, if you wait to be perfect, you never will. You just have to accept that it's going to be bad in the beginning, but you'll get better and you'll find your stride and you'll learn what works and what doesn't and what you like doing and what you don't. I think it's so important to just start. Just start. Not the first time we've heard that advice here on the show, and I'm sure it won't be the last. I always appreciate talking to other podcasters here on Creative Elements because I learn a lot about their process and what is actually working for them. It was encouraging to hear that a lot of Mignon's advice, like getting started on a network, has validated the approach that I've taken with this very show. And as I shared a couple weeks ago in my short episode on comparison traps, I'm excited to try out creating my own shorter solo episodes of the show from time to time. If you're thinking about starting a podcast yourself, I highly recommend my course, Podcast Like the Pros. It's more than five hours of content breaking down exactly how I approach creating this show. It includes interviews with my engineer, Nathan, my music producer, Brian, and the head of the podglomerate, Jeff Umro. A link is in the show notes. Nearly 100 students have gone through this already, and it gets better reviews than just about anything else I've ever made. If you want to improve your spoken or written English, I recommend you subscribe to Mignon's podcast, Grammar Girl, which is linked in the show notes as well. Thanks to Mignon for being on the show. Thank you to Emily Klaus for making the artwork for this episode. Thanks to Nathan Todd Hunter for mixing this show and Brian Skeel for creating our music. If you like this episode, you can tweet at jklaus and let me know. And if you really want to say thank you, as always, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you next week. Sonic Universe.